Welcome to the Jimmy Neville Podcast. Today we have Christopher Russell, a psychology graduate student and former substance abuse counselor. With his background and personal experience as a recovering addict, Christopher offers a unique perspective on addiction and recovery. He has dedicated his time to spreading awareness and helping others through his presentations on the four agreements and online coaching. I've had the pleasure of knowing Christopher for about six years, and we have also worked together for about three years. I had a great time talking with him for this episode. Let's get right into it. Christopher. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, got some questions for you. Um, so we're kind of, we talked about this a little bit before, but what I want to do is kind of walk through your life a little bit. And um, as we walk through your life, ask you some questions about the, some st- stuff you've learned, you know, being a substance abuse counselor, and some stuff you've learned just in, in life in general about psychology stuff like that. Um, so the first question is looking back on your life, like when is the first time you realized that, that you were an addict? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I guess I would say the, the very first time that I took uh, the very first drug that I did was hydrocodone. And the first time I took it, it not looking back, it was obvious the, the euphoria, uh, just the the fear, the anxiety had went away. But, but I mean, before that, uh, just looking back, uh, you know, after being in uh, learning more about psychology and learning more about myself, uh, when I was like five or six, like uh, I could see where I was trying to escape my reality. I was, uh, you know, I would get into this, um, I would get into my imagination. I would go into, I would play like these certain characters and I believe what I was trying to do was I was trying to you know do whatever it took to make it through the reality that I was in. So I mean, and that that could come as simple as uh, getting in a chair. It's it's what would be called sensation seeking. And so I would get in my chair like a like a chair that would spin around, and I would spin around until I would make myself dizzy, and then I would just keep doing it. Uh, and, and I believe it's because that's that's that sensory of that of that of getting dizzy was something I was seeking. And so then when I was 12 years old and I took my first hydrocodone, um, I, I walked in on my brother and he had taken a prescription from someone and I walked in on him and he had a, a cigar case of, uh, where he had put them all, all the hydrocodones in there. And I walked in on him taking them before he was leaving on a Friday. And it was like a Friday afternoon after school. And he, I walked in on him and he was taking, you know, a couple of them. And he told me, he's like, hurry up, get in here, close the door. And I got in there and I said, what are those? And he said, they're, well, he said, they're Vicodin. I said, what do they do? He said, they make you happy. And at the time that was happiness was not, you know, you know, childhood, you think of it, it should be happy, right? You, um, and, and I had brief moments of happiness. Usually I was playing sports, but I mean, uh, other than that, like being at the house, was not a very happy time for me. And when I took those, he gave me two of them. And so I took them and then he left and he went out for the weekend. So he took two and then left all weekend. And uh, I went and sat and I I think I went and sat and watched CNN for like hours. And then uh, from that Friday night to that Sunday, I went back, I saw where he put, where he hit on that. And so I went back and back and back. And by the time he came home that Sunday evening, um, I think I'd left him like two in there. And so it's very clear looking back now that uh, it, as soon as I found something that changed me, I was seeking it. Yeah, kind of like we talked about, like an escape from reality. Yes, yeah. And I was I was desperately, I mean, because there was a lot of pain involved. And uh, I, I remember like the, the panic and the anxiety attacks that I had, like that was a daily occurrence for me as a child, um, and, you know, as a 12-year-old boy. And I have my, you know, my children now and I, I can't think of them. It's hard to think about them experiencing that on a daily basis. Yeah, I, I can imagine. So what do you think makes a person an addict? The whole argument, nature versus nurture. 
do you think it's a combination of those things one more than the other yeah i think i, I think is the, the more i've learned like uh, for for a little while i would say that i thought it was uh, it was simply biological <clears throat> but the more the more i've learned about things is uh, you know i think we we people have a tendency to want to pick one but i think it i think it is both i, I think it's a combination of things um you know, and I think the combination of of the you know the, your biology, your neurobiology, and your environment and your experiences might determine the intensity of it or how difficult it is to break out of it. Uh, but definitely in my case, I think it was both. Uh, I think I have a natural uh, tendency to be more sensitive to uh, alcohol, uh, opiates, particularly. Um, they, I think my level of euphoria when I have those substances is not a it, it might not be experienced by everyone so i think it's both i think it's a combination and then the environment that i was in uh really set me up psychologically uh to be psychologically seeking an alternative to to my reality yeah yeah so how would you define the term addict like what would be your definition there's multiple parts of it so an addict i would say well, in, in school, we would learn that there's a biological, psychological, and social aspect to addiction. Uh, so an addict is someone who has, uh, has a psychological uh, tendency to the extremes a lot and a psychological mm -hmm. tendency to want to escape their feelings. Um, you know, the, the neurological part of it is that there might be some, there, there is likely differences in their brains to where they're a little more sensitive to uh, the effects of a substance, and so you know, it causes that um, uh, that euphoric recall uh, that everyone do doesn't experience. I don't think uh, so. There was one thing that that I had read that um, when when you're assessing uh, for alcoholism, is you can look at the idea of does alcohol speed you up when you first take it. So if you drink alcohol and it like really speeds you up rather than sedating you at first. Uh, that it's likely that uh, you have that. Uh, I, I, I think some people have theorized that it's an allergy. I don't know if that's exactly correct. I don't know if it's an allergy, but it's definitely a difference neurologically uh, between the how how that drug has the the effect that drug has on you um, on your brain. Uh, so so the addict is going to be um, it, it's psychologically vulnerable to escaping uh, neurologically. Uh, they're more sensitive to uh, to substances. Uh, their brain reacts uh, in different ways than uh, than you know whatever you'd call normal people. Uh, and socially, I think uh, you know there's definitely mental health factors that play in. You know, people that are more sensitive to stimulation in social environments that uh, those feelings become overwhelming, and so they're going to have a tendency to want to correct that or uh, to soften that blow from from the environment. Uh, Carl, Carl Jung talked about something. Um, he, he talked about a stimulus barrier, and so when you're when when the adolescent is growing up, there's a natural stimulus barrier that uh, protects you from the environment. And ideally, and, and this is going to be more of like developmental. Uh, so so I guess there's a developmental aspect to it too. So when the child is transitioning from say 12, 13 years old, uh, the natural stimulus barrier it, it it, it protects you from uh, from stimulus coming in from the environment. So, you know, at this time you would see kids that uh, they're not they're not like super self-conscious. Um, you know, they'll dance, they'll sing. Uh, you know, and they're not they're not too affected by how other people view them. Uh, you know, by you know they're they're not they don't get as embarrassed. But around 12 or 13, when we start being you know super self-conscious about the way we look, about our bodies, that stimulus barrier, that nat natural stimulus stimulus barrier is coming down. And then ideally, what happens is the person will erect, uh, you know, through you know adolescence, 12 to you know to their 20s, they're going to erect a um, a boundary, an ego boundary. And so, you know, in my case, I started taking substances at 12 years old. And so what I did is erect a a chemical barrier between me and the environment, and so it's it's very difficult to say how much how much of that was natural. Uh, my my sensitivity to the environments that I was in, the sounds, the people, uh, the interactions, it's difficult for me to say because I started using so early because I I erected a chemical barrier between me and the environment, 
And so anything that was coming in was filtered through, uh, you know, through through this chemical barrier. Now, I, ideally, you you know, you have a mother and a father that uh, that helps you develop those ego boundaries and it protects you from the environment. Um, so, uh, so, so that would be like the psychological side of it. Is I had very, I, I don't guess I had any um, erected ego boundaries or stimulus barriers. Uh, from 12 to 20. And so when I didn't have a substance, the, the stimulus coming from the environment was overwhelming. Uh, and it would be so overwhelming that, you know, I would, all I would do was obsess and look forward to the next time that, uh, that I could blunt that a little bit. Um, and then, you know, give me some, some type of ease. Uh, so 12 was the Vicodin. I started searching out. Um, I mean, I was in middle school and I was, I would, I started paying attention to my friends and, uh, I would listen for if their parents had surgery, uh, that's going to be, some of them are going to, if they ever hear this, but so I would listen if their parents had surgery or if the kids went to the doctor and like during the winter and, uh, I knew the, you know, about the cough medicines, um, I, I would, I would basically invite myself over to their house and go searching for, for their pills. That, that was in middle school or, or any other prescriptions. Yeah, it's, it's wild to think about how the stuff we do as a kid can impact our reality so much. Yeah. And, and like you're talking about, the, the barrier. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I was also very, very sensitive to stimulus. And it's, it's crazy to look back and think that, yeah, there's a good chance that was because of the, the drugs I was putting in my body at an early age. Yeah, yeah it definitely affects the, the n- n- neurodevelopment, you know, the, uh, how, how our brain is. Now, I, I do think that I was probably also, uh, I, I think because of the childhood trauma that my brain was already altered a little bit. Um, the fight or flight, you know, I, I pretty much lived in fight or flight uh, most of my childhood, I think. So that already changed my brain. And then I added chemicals to it. So. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be, um, it'd be interesting to look back and, and, truly be able to tell how all that stuff impacted our development. Maybe, right. maybe there'll be some studies that one day in the, in the future that'll, that'll shine a light on that more. Yeah. yeah but I think brain imaging, uh, figuring out what parts of the, I think we're, you know, we are getting to that now is like, but as a, if that, if that 12 year old boy could have got in and they could have done uh, some type of brain imaging to see which parts of my brain were firing up and which ones weren't, um, like that book that me and you had talked about, uh, the body keeps the score. Uh, it talks about the trauma, the the brain that's gone through trauma, uh, the front part of the brain, the prefrontal uh, lobe, actually starts to shut down. And so that's our logic, that's our uh, you know our our cognitive, our thinking part of the brain. And we we function more out of like you know the older uh, the limbic system, the emotional uh, side of the brain. And so the trauma had set me up also to you know, to, to where, so it, you know, we talked about this too. So like whenever, so when the front part of the brain starts to shut down, there's also a part of the brain that uh, perceives time and that part gets all scrambled. And so when you're going through like a super emotional moment, you know, um, a super emotional moment that's social, or it could be something that's like serious happening in our brain, we can't tell time. Um, it, that the part that's perceiving the time has actually been altered, and so it does seem like it's going to last forever, and so it's very difficult for uh, you know for people with that you know uh, you know that have been through trauma uh, to perceive time, perceive that this will pass. Uh, you know, at that moment, it, it seems like that pain or that emotion is going to last forever. Yeah, yeah, it definitely, definitely does. I can definitely relate to that. Um, so do you want to take a, take a second to describe what your rock bottom was like? My rock bottom was the last year coming out of my, coming to the end of my twenties. Um, me and me and my ex-wife were, or my wife at the time, we, we had kind of separated. Uh, I was, I'd been homeless like two or three times, maybe more than that, uh, during this time period. But, uh, so me and me and my wife had split up. She had the kids. Uh, I was, 
you know, struggling just to have anywhere to live. Um, I'd moved back in to my, my mom's house. Um, I'd went to, I'd, I'd actually went to treatment and then I'd got out of treatment, started drinking and using again. And, and I was living at my mom's house and, um, Amy was living with her parents and I didn't get to see the kids very much. I didn't get to see, uh, Amy very much. And, um, then some, sometime around September, uh, this is like the last year in September, uh, my family had kind of, they were trying to get me to stop drinking and stop, uh, you know, stop using. So they kind of sequestered me to the house and said, you can't leave and you can't go get anything. And so I started feeling like, you know, very, very funny. You know, uh, my brain started feeling different and, um, I ended up having a seizure and I had a seizure and I kind of, I shattered my L4 vertebrae. And so that was September, um, then, so physically, I was physically I was broken. Um, and then the the next December, uh, my father passed away. That December, my father was always you know pretty supportive. Uh, he never really enabled me, but he was. He never lost the idea that I could that I I was more than than what I was at the time. That that I had more in me. That I could do something pretty special and. Uh, he would, you know, talk to me about how smart I was, and um, so he he continued to see my potential rather than where I was at the moment. And so my father passed away. Uh, I ended up going to the funeral. Um, I, I had to stop and get some dope on the way to the funeral because I was there's I just couldn't get through it without it. And so we went, we went to the funeral. Uh, my family wanted me to go to the funeral. They wanted me to, you know, they didn't want me to miss that. So they kind of, um, looked past everything for that, for that particular time. And then, uh, I ended up at, after the funeral, I ended up, uh, family wasn't, you know, there was nowhere really for me to stay. And I ended up in, uh, living in this abandoned house. Um, that was like January to January to August. Uh, I was living in this abandoned house. I had friends that would come by that uh, would stop by and get high with me. And then, you know, they would get high with me, but there was, I couldn't really go to their place to stay. And so I was living in this abandoned house and it was, I mean, there was times I would go a week without seeing anyone. And so I'm sitting inside this dark house and, you know, I've already got, um, you know, a proclivity to, you know, to, to experience, you know, certain mental uh mental health issues. And so it was, it was horrible. It was torture. And then at the abandoned house during the summer in West, West Tennessee is where the house was. And during the summer, it's, you know, it can get 90 in the, the upper nineties, a hundred degrees. And inside the house, I just remember like, uh, be, being so incredibly hot and so incredibly dehydrated and hadn't eaten. And I, I mean, I thought I was going to die there. I, I was, I was almost certain of it that I was going to die there. And, so that w that went on for a little while. Towards the end of that summer, I would leave the house at night. Uh, I didn't want to leave during the daytime. There was there were were a few times that I left that abandoned house in the daytime, but I had to be very careful because the neighbors knew that I was staying there, and they would call the cops, and the cops would come kick me out, and then I would have to wait a while, and then I would go back. And um, so most of the time, I went out late at night, and there were you know at this time I was you know just searching anything. If nobody came by to give you know get me high or uh, if I couldn't find any money to get alcohol, uh, I ended up going to, to this Walmart that was like, uh, through the woods. Um, I would walk through the woods and come in from behind the Walmart and go into the Walmart and I would just go pick up a bottle of mouthwash and, uh, mouthwash is pretty high alcohol content. It's like 21% or something. And, uh, so I would, I would, and, and people didn't notice, you know, if you just walked out with a bottle of mouthwash, uh, it was a lot different than walking out with a 12 pack, you know, like, you know. Uh, the Walmart employees would notice if I was walking out with beer, but I could walk out with a bottle of mouthwash and they wouldn't say anything. And plus it was in, in my mind at the time, it was more alcohol. And so that's all I was thinking. And uh, there, there were times that I couldn't even make it back to that house. So I would leave the Walmart with this bottle of mouthwash and I would get on the side of the Walmart and I would just start chugging the mouthwash. And it's, uh, it's got, it's horrible for you. And, um, mouthwash also has fluoride in it and fluoride is a neurotoxin. So that wasn't, 
helping things. And but I would go back to this house, you know, drink this mouthwash and uh, and, and sit there, you know, by myself, um, extremely trapped. Uh, and, and the emotional pain, the psychological pain, was so extreme. Uh, my body was, you know, physically breaking down, and then eventually my mind broke, and I ended up retreating to this closet in uh, in the house. It was in the center of the house, and I went to this closet, and I had this, I had these um, uh, these blankets and like, you know, these you know, dirty blankets and stuff, and I laid it down. And I had a radio at the house that I'd gotten from somewhere, and so I'd lay there in in this house, and I, I got in the closet, and part of the reason I got in there was because I was seeing. Um, I was seeing like these these shadows moving around, and and in my mind they were demons, and they were there to take me because I was about to die, and I probably really was close to death, but like psychologically I was hallucinating, and uh, I was going through a mental breakdown, and um, so I ended up in this closet. I laid there for days. Uh, I don't I don't know how long. Um, the you know time was very distorted, and I laid there in the closet, and uh, eventually. This uh, this girl that I got high with and kind of ran the streets with uh, came to the house and she opened the closet door and I remember seeing the flashlight shining down on me. Um, at this time the radio was going dead also, so the radio was going dead. It's talking to me very slow and my mind's like you know really freaking out, uh, thinking the devil was talking to me. And I saw I see this flashlight come in and I'm thinking, all right, that's that's the light, right? Like maybe I'm going to the light and. Uh, and then it went away, and, and I, I had no energy uh, to get up to see what the light was. I don't, I don't know if I even cared what it was, if it was someone, if it was something. And so I just laid, laid back down. And this girl ended up coming back to the house later on that day, and uh, she shined the f- flashlight into the closet, and I see a hand reach around the flashlight, and it's a bottle of vodka. And I knew enough to know what that was, and so I grabbed it. And, you know, I'm trembling um, and I just start drinking the vodka. And, you know, as soon as it as soon as it started to hit me, uh, it's like I rushed back into reality. And the what I what I remember is the very first thought in my head was um, my children's father is about to die in an abandoned house. And I remember this uh, this this part of me and it's it's the the fighter part of me that. Uh, said, fuck that. Um, fuck that. That's not going to happen. And, you know, I'm so, I'm so grateful for that part of myself. It, it's, you know, it, it, it seems to manifest itself whenever I'm going through really difficult situations. There's a part of me that just cannot accept that, that reality, accept uh, any kind of quit. And so I set up, I, I got down to the bo- bottom of the vodka bottle and she sat down I don't remember us even saying anything. I th- I, I'm sure she was. Um, I, I'm sure that her her seeing me like that was, you know, probably pretty scary. Uh, you know, I was in bad shape. And then she handed me a spoon and a syringe and some uh, some dope. I think it was uh, Roxy or something. And so I did the dope and I I hit it and it made me feel just just enough relief to where I could stand up. And I stood up and I told her, I said, take me to a fucking hospital. Now, at the the hospital that I was going to, I'd, I'd been to all throughout my 20s. And um, I, I met one of my, one of the one of the first people that really had an impact on me um, was a psychologist at, at this uh, hospital called Pathways. And his name was Dr. King. And I saw him like maybe when I was 25. And the first question he asked me, he said, you... If I look at you, he said, you seem pretty calm. And he said, you seem like a pretty chill guy. He said, if I could see inside of you, what would I see? And as soon as he said that, um, I don't even know if I was aware of it. And I broke down crying. I said, you'd see chaos. And that was the first time I met with him. And Dr. King told me, he said, Christopher, he said, if you ever feel like your back's against the wall, if you ever feel like um, you want to do something to permanently end this, um, he said, before you do, come here and give me a chance to work with you. And he said, you can rest here for a few days and you'll always have a bed here. And so I, when I stood up at that moment in that house, um, I was close to the end and all I could think, if I can get there, if I can get to him, uh, if I can get to this safe place, 
maybe I'll have a chance. You know, it definitely wasn't a sure thing in my mind. I, I was not sure if I was going to be able to do anything different, but if I could make it there. And so I told her, I said, take me to a fucking hospital. Uh, she took me there and they kept me there for a pretty long time, considering it was a crisis stabilization and a detox unit. And I believe I stayed there um, 12 to 14 days before we could figure out where I was going to go. Um, but I remember I walked out of my room every every morning. You would have to go meet with somebody, and they would do these assessments, and they would talk to you. And every morning I, w I walked out of that uh, out of my room, and I would just start crying. Uh, it, it was I was in such pain. I was hopeless. I was um, in, you know in really bad shape, completely broken. Uh, my body was breaking down. My mind, my spirit was breaking down. Um, and, and I cried every day for like 14 days. And I was not sure anything different can happen. And then that, that's when I ended up going to Memphis, Tennessee. But so that was the rock bottom. That was where, that was where the dark, the darkest times before the light. Yeah. So <clears throat> while, while I'm listening to you talk about that, it, it's, I'm, I'm thinking about how, how interesting it is to look back and, and to think that for you, like, that could have just been another day, but yeah. in reality, it was the end of a chapter in the beginning of a new chapter. And also a story that is going to have such an impact on, on you and a story that you're going to be able to share with others to, to help them. Um, it's, it's pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah. And it, and that is like one of the things that, that helped. I, well, I think eventually one of the things that helped me was I, I started to be able to see that idea that if I can make it through this, that all that pain and all that hurt, it doesn't have to be for nothing. Like there is something that I could, but that would be when I would, when I met my mentor and when, when he really started helping me to change my thinking. So the, the first month in Memphis was, um, I ended up, I had a, I ended up my first 30 days. I went to this place called Harbor house and, um, it's like right on the edge of orange mound. Um, and Orange Mound's a notorious community in Memphis. Um, but so I went to Harbor House, and I don't think I spoke for two weeks. Uh, I was, I was, I, I guess I was, I don't know, mentally, mentally, I was just, you know, out, out broken. I, I don't know what. I'd say mentally, I was just, I just wanted to be quiet. And I was in the, I was, well, I was basically like a, uh, like a scared dog, uh, or a scared animal. And I was just froze up. And so I, I, I wouldn't talk. I wouldn't really speak to anybody. I didn't really eat that much, but, um, I remember an emergency room psychiatrist came in and talked to the group. Uh, you know, if they had, if they had, uh, psychiatrists come in and speak once a week, they considered themselves co-occurring. They, treated co-occurring disorders if, if they had somebody come speak. But he came in there and they were talking about different mental health diagnosis uh, to the group. And uh, the psychiatrist said, he said, really, it's the, it's the ones, the people that are mentally ill that are dangerous are when they get very quiet and when they won't speak. And whenever he said that, everybody in the room turned and looked at me. <laughs> and <laughs> I remember that very clearly. But I, I started to break out of that. And I, I remember, so... Uh, this this little harbor house, uh, they only had programming four days a week, and so there were three days out of that month, or out of that week, that you just really weren't doing anything uh, besides interacting with the you know the other guys there. But I remember after that first couple of weeks passed, and I kind of started realizing the shape I was in physically, mentally, and I started thinking, all right, we're going to start putting ourselves back together a little bit at a time. And I went, there's a basketball court, like an old broken down basketball court, like down, down the hill. And it was uh, kind of off the side of the interstate in Memphis. And um, I remember the first day I went and I tried to do some push-ups, and I tried to run around the basketball court. And like my second lap around the basketball court, my legs were so weak and my body was so weak that my legs just completely collapsed. And I, I hit the ground and I like scooted, you know, it, it, I fell so hard, I scooted. And I remember getting up and hitting the ground. I was so upset. Uh, the shape that I was in, psychologically, uh, physically, I was so upset that um, 
that that I was where I was at. I, I was I was not happy, and I, I I still at that time I didn't I wasn't sure about how I was gonna make anything you know different, but I was looking for it. I was you know searching. I was you know if I have to run a few laps, I'm gonna run and try to at least strengthen my body a little bit, and then. Um, I think a lot of my life has been uh, up until a certain point, even now, um, there's a lot of things I've done intuitively. Uh, So there's, and I think it's the spiritual side of me that's connected to something higher. Um, You know, like, so when I was in Memphis, I knew there was something coming to help me, but I didn't know exactly what it was. Or I knew that there was a path ahead of me, although I couldn't see. Um, I couldn't see how that path was going to go out. But, But there was a part of me that, kept telling me that it's there, it's there. If you make it through today, make it through, you know, the next day. And if I keep doing that, then uh, eventually I'm going to find the things that I need to find. And that that's kind of how it played out. But, you know, definitely there was that part of me that was very doubtful uh, that anything different was going to occur. Yet there was also this other side of me that, um, you know, that seemed to know that there was something else. Maybe it was like a knowledge of my, that that I was capable of something else, Although like my, my, very, my human part of myself struggled to, to make sense of that. It's just, it's, it's crazy for me to look back knowing you and look back at this, like get a peek into this time period for you. Yeah. Um, and just seeing like, you know, hearing about who you were back then versus who you are today and all right. the, all the changes that were made. So, um, like what do you like during the during over the next few years you know obviously you kind of got your shit together got 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 cleaned up um started going to school to become a substance abuse or to to become psychologist um like what what would you say are a few like the key aspects of your recovery over those next few years so i went from harbor house and I, i had nowhere to go and so uh there was this program called cap and or CAPS, cocaine, alcohol program, something. And uh, so it was a homeless program. And so I went I went to that program. It was a longer-term uh, program, homeless program in Memphis. And uh, so I went there. Um, I was you know, still very stuck in this survival state, you know, still very, uh, very raw, very vulnerable. And uh, when I got there, I met this, this guy named uh, Christopher Moore, uh, so I, I met Chris and we started working together and I mean, you know, I, I, I was, I was listening to, to the things they were talking about and there, the program wasn't like super in depth about anything really. But, uh, but I met Chris and, um, he had this book called the four agreements and, uh, he asked, he told me to take a look at it and to read it and, I read it the first time, like, you know, it engaged me like right away, especially at that moment, uh, in my life. And, um, so, so I read the four agreements and it was, you know, it was, you know, kind of talking about how, how reality and the meaning of things, uh, is really up to us. And that was a new idea to me because I'd always really seen my life as a tragedy like this, you know, up to that point. I just had really accepted the fact that my life is a tragedy. It's going to end in tragedy, and that's my destiny. Um, the book, The Four Agreements, really started touching on the idea that whether that was going to be true or not was up to me. And I was like, "What?" Like that was that, it. Really started breaking some things down in my mind. Like, or, so so even though I've struggled up into this point, the meaning of what that struggle is or what that means to me and for my life is up to me. I didn't know that. Like at the time, I thought it just meant what it meant. And so I read the, you know, read the book. I loved it. It was, it, it was so much at the time that like I was struggling to keep up with some of it. Um, and so I, I went to Chris and I told him, I said, man, I love the book. Um, I'm having trouble. Uh, um, I'm having trouble keeping up with some of the ideas. And he said, maybe you should take notes. And this is a big statement, uh, a big like point in my life was he said, maybe you should take notes. And I told him, uh, I've never been a note taking kind of guy. And he said, maybe you should fucking learn. And I was like, wow. Because at the time, like, I thought that's just how I was like, Oh, I've never, you know, 
and then you know I started thinking Fixed like first growth mindset. Exactly. You know, yeah. When did when did I decide that I'm not a note taking kind of guy? And I was like, man, like when, well, for one, when did I decide that? And then for two, uh, now I know that I don't have to stay that way. And so from from that day forward, man, I, I started taking I started taking notes on everything. I carried pens around with me, and I would just jot down notes. And um, that, that that was a big moment because it was one of the moments where you know I learned that um, just because I was a certain way at the time didn't mean I had to stay that way. Uh, so that that's always stuck out in my mind. Yeah, yeah, that's um, that is such a cool lesson. Because it, it puts the power back in your hands. Exactly. You know, you don't have to. It's not the cards I was dealt. It's right. it's I can I can control the cards. Right. Um, which is which is awesome. Um. Yeah. So you kind of talked about your mentor there. Um, what do you so so you you also had an experience uh, last year where you did some some coaching online. For, for a period of time. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think makes a good men mentee, you know, someone that is receiving um, guidance from a mentor? Uh, I, I think that um, that mindset, the, the, the fixed versus the growth mindset is something that I really noticed with some of the guys that I worked with. Uh, the guys that are curious about learning, uh, uh, about growing, um, the idea that, you know, coming into something as, as far as like, you know, I don't have all the answers and I'm looking, you know, for more. And so they were willing to, you know, to experiment with some of the things that, that I, I encouraged them to do. Uh, writing was one of the, one of the bigger things. Um, so it was, it was at that Memphis, it was at that, um, after I had read the four agreements, and I'd started, uh, I'd started putting together the idea of how powerful the story was that I was telling myself. And so, um, you know, the story I was telling myself up to that point was this is a tragedy. These are the cards I was dealt. Um, there's nothing I can do about it. This, this is just, this is the way it's going to go. Uh, that story impacted everything about my life. It impacted everything that I noticed about life, what I thought was possible, um, every interaction I had, I had was, uh, viewed through that storyline, that narrative. And so when I was, when I was at, uh, one night while I was at that homeless facility, I couldn't sleep one night and I got up and I said, how cool would it be if I could change the story? If I got, to, if I get to decide how this story goes, how would I write it? And that's the very first hero story was written there. Uh, I, I wrote about my past and, instead of viewing it the way I'd always viewed it, I wasn't viewing it as this story is going to end in tragedy. I was viewing it as this story is going to be the story of a hero and he's going to rise up. And so I, I, I kind of framed my past in my writings about the past um, as that. This is this is the, the origin story of the hero. And then now the hero is in this homeless facility, um, but that's not, that's not where he's going to be forever. He's going somewhere. He's, he's about to do something. And he's going to take all of the pain and stuff from the past, and he's going to use it for something very great. And so now I, I, I've encouraged people to, to do the writing, to, to write your story out, to take the time to put together the narrative, not just how you've been telling it, but really analyze the idea of what is the story that you're telling yourself on a daily basis. What is the story you tell yourself about the past? What is the story that you tell yourself about this current situation you're in, whether it's, whether it looks good or, or it looks bad, like what is the story that you're telling yourself about it? Because it has a huge impact on you. And so the, the guys that I've worked with that were a good mentee, I guess were, um, you know, kind of were a reflection of where I was at in Memphis too, when I worked with Chris was, um, they were looking for ways to improve themselves. They were looking for ways to, and they, they were open to the idea. So they were open to the idea of writing the hero story. Um, they were open to this idea of uh, starting to analyze their self-talk. And so, so I guess being open-minded and trying things was uh, one of the, one of the key aspects to how good they were going to do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. We talked a little bit about it earlier but they were talking about happiness and relationships and they were talking about some studies that have shown that there's people that think, 
you know, there's these very specific things that people think make a good relationship, you know, whether that be income or, um, you know, partner's height. Like there's a lot of these, like when you're, when you're looking to get in a relationship, there's a lot of factors that you're thinking about. And none of those like typical factors actually end up being good predictors of a long-term healthy relationship. And one of the, one of the biggest things was the, the growth mindset. You know, when you're, when you're in a relationship, having that growth mindset and, and realizing that, hey, just because things aren't working too great right now, like it can always change and we can always, we can always adapt and, and grow together. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things I've learned, uh, you know, over, over the years is that uh, happiness, progress is uh, happiness, like progress creates a lot of happiness. And so if I'm in a relationship, if I feel like we are moving forward, if I feel like we are growing together and we're making progress, I'm going to be more satisfied with it. But that's on an individual level too. You know, it, you know, we talked about that this morning is, um, I, I need to feel like I'm progressing in some way, physically, mentally, and spiritually is my goal. Uh, if I can physically, spiritually, and, um, mentally get say 1% better, it, it, it fuels me. I feel differently. And so a lot of my happiness is, uh, based on the fact of whether I'm growing in certain aspects of my life. I would say every aspect of my life, uh, even if it's 1%, you know? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so when did you first realize that you were interested in psychology to the point where you, you told yourself like, Hey, I want to study this. Like I want to go back to school and study this. Uh, so I think when, Whenever, whenever I was in Memphis and, and Chris, Chris was really talking to me about, um, well, I, I think we were discussing like my strengths and all right. So there was a situation where, uh, Chris would ask me, he would do a suicide assessment on me, uh, almost every day, I guess. And so I went into his office one day and, uh, he asked me and this, I was like, this was probably 60, 70, 80 days clean at this program. And he asked me, he said, Christopher, are you, um, are you still, are you still having suicidal thoughts? And I said, yeah, every day. Um, at that time, it, it was a daily occurrence that, uh, it, pretty frequently, my mind said, if this get, if this hurts anymore, if this gets any worse, um, I'll, I'll hit the eject button, and I'll just, I'll just leave and I'll escape. And that was some, I, I battled that daily. Um, you know, I, I felt like I was right on the edge of, of either killing myself or not. And I had to consistently find reasons to not. And so he asked me one day, he said, are you, are you having suicide thoughts? I said, yeah, every day. And he, he shook his head and he looked down and he said, Chris, he said, um, I, so the, the place that I was in, these guys were a lot of them, they were off the streets of Memphis. A lot of them were gang members. Um, a lot of them had came to cap just so they could get out of jail. And so these, these guys were, are basically trained not to show emotion. Uh, not to show vulnerability. And he, so he asked me that he shook his head and he, he looked up, he said, Chris, he said, these guys come out of their room every day and they tell you they love you and they hope you have a good day. Uh, he said, you're, you're reaching these guys in ways that I can't. And when he, when he said that, I started, I started seeing something, you know, started seeing some strengths that I had. Um, and you know, then at some point I really, yeah, I think I I had started listening to Jim Rohn, uh, the personal the personal development king, uh, Jim Rohn, and Jim Rohn was talking about the idea of loving what you do, and so I started really thinking about like, well, what do I love to do? And it was also when I was writing the hero story, like, what do I love to do? And I love thinking and learning about psychology and about how the human mind works. Um, I, I was always fascinated with that. Like when I was a child, like one of my escapes was my mom had got this, uh, big set of encyclopedia Britannicas. And, uh, one of the, one of the, um, one of the books was specifically on psychology. And so I used to get that book and I just used to read it like for fun as a child. Uh, and so I started looking back at that and I'm like, well, uh, that's what I love to do. And then I started really piecing together if how can how can what I love to do be a service to others? How how can I use that to make the world a little bit better of a place? And that's when I really started tapping into something that was that that flame inside of me really started building. 
And Jim Rohn talked about paying attention to that. Pay attention to what turns you on. Uh, pay, pay attention to what lights you up. Uh, and then do more of that. And so, and, and then, so I, I was working on those ideas um, in Memphis. And when I wrote the hero story, it kind of just came out. Um, this guy is, uh, this character is going to become a psychologist and he's going to use his love of psychology and his experiences. He's going to put himself together. And then through that, he's going to learn more about how to put himself together and how, you know, how the psychology works of personal development. And, and then he's going to use that to, uh, to make the world a little bit better. And, and at the time I was, I didn't even know what I was exactly doing, but what I was doing was I was finding an a more empowering meaning uh, for my life and for some of the situations or the experiences in my life. Yeah. Yeah. That is so, so cool. How you were able to kind of design your life through writing like that. Um, yeah. I see the sun. Yeah. Peeking in on you. Um, yeah. So digging into that a little more, like, like who's one of your favorite psychologists? You've talked about Carl Jung a little bit. Like, is, is he your favorite or do you have a, a uh, I don't want to say favorite, but one of, one of your favorite. Right. Um, so there, I, I would say there's a, there's definitely a running for the top two would be Jordan Peterson and Carl Jung. And, you know, Peterson obviously talks about Jung a lot too. Um, I'd read Carl Jung when I was little too. And, and, I didn't even really know how to pronounce his name. I think I called him Carl Jung or something. But <laughs> I, I, I remember reading some of his stuff when I was young, and I didn't even know what it – there was a part of me that understood some of the stuff he was talking about, even though, like, the the little boy couldn't understand what he was talking about. And so Carl Jung is, is probably one of my favorites, and Jordan Peterson. And then there's, uh, there's another guy that really helped me in the beginning. Uh, his name's Martin Seligman. And he runs, uh, he, he kind of started working on this idea of positive psychology. Um, and a lot, a lot of, a lot of the things that I started working, you know, it looks at self-talk, um, teaching resilience, um, you know, really building on your strengths rather than focusing on your weaknesses and trying to fix the weaknesses. Well, if I just build the strengths up, um, the weaknesses, uh, tend to strengthen as well. So Martin Seligman at Penn State was pretty big, but Young and Peterson are my Top, top two. Okay. And kind of along that same line, I know you talked about the four agreements a little bit, but if you had to put your finger on like what one of your favorite books were and why, what would that, would that be the four agreements or, or another book? Yeah, I, th I think, I, I think it would have to be the four agreements. Um, I've definitely learned a lot about, I've definitely learned a lot from other other writings in, in psychology, but as far as the impact it had on me and how the change that it brought about, uh, The Four Agreements was a basic, simple way of teaching me about how my thinking was creating my reality. And then there's also a spiritual side of The Four Agreements. So I was getting this, this, this spiritual, I was feeding my spirit while also learning about how my thinking was creating my reality. Um, you know, so the, the four agreements are be impeccable with your word. Uh, when I read that and I started becoming aware of what I was saying to myself all day, not just what I was saying to myself, but what I was saying to other people. So people would say, hey, man, who, you know, who are you? And when I would tell my story and I was not very impeccable uh, with my word, I was I was, you know, Jordan Peterson talks about stop saying things that make you weak. And my whole story was making me weak. So I would tell people. Um, you know, when I start to tell them about who I was or my life, I would tell this sad story, this, this story of this, you know, this guy never stood a chance. He was born into the wrong family. Um, you know, so when I'm reading the first agreement, be impeccable with your word, I'm thinking, man, like what I'm saying to myself and to others is really tearing me down. And so I, right, right then I started like practicing on a daily basis, like being very careful about what I said out loud and then being very attentive to to what I was saying to myself inside my own head. Um, and so, you know, rather than telling myself things like, oh, I can't, um, this is too much, um, you know, I started paying attention to, to that, that, that inner dialogue. Um, and then uh, uh, don't take things personal. 
the second second agreement, I started paying attention to how much I took everything so personally. Um, I took my, I, I on like a, a bigger level, I took the idea of being my childhood. I took that as the universe. The universe had had singled me out and just like uh, wanted me to experience the worst thing possible in my life. So I even took my experiences as the family I was born into or the experiences. I took that very personal. I, I, I took it as a slight from the universe. Um, and so I started, you know, thinking about this. I'm, I'm taking things so personally. Now in the future, I would learn about, uh, uh, you know, I would read Viktor Frankl's book and that, that was another book that really, that really changed my perception of suffering and some of the tragedies in life. You know, Viktor Frankl talked about going through the concentration camp, but one of the, one of the things that Frankl, one of the terms he, or phrases he uses in his book, he, he calls it unavoidable suffering that regardless of the path you take in life, there is going to be suffering. And so it, it helped me to stop taking my suffering so personally as, as though I was the only one going through suffering or the universe had picked me out, you know, particularly to go through a certain suffering. Um, so, so Frankel's book, this idea that the universe had conspired against me, you know, I had to stop taking some of that shit so personally and, um, and then the, you know, the third agreement is, uh, never make assumptions. Uh, that was a big one. And, and the reason that was particularly helpful was because I was always assuming the worst. And so this kind of goes back to the being impeccable. All the agreements are, are kind of working back towards the first agreement, the be impeccable with your word. So whatever I'm making assumptions, I'm, I'm assuming how things are going to turn out, or I'm assuming the meaning of things. Um, when I don't necessarily have enough information. So I think um, Mark, Mark Twain said there's nothing sadder than a young pessimist. And then I've, I've also heard that we never actually have enough information to be pessimistic. I simply don't know what things are right away. Um, and then even when I think that they mean a certain thing, if I give like a negative meaning to it, uh, I'm basically giving my power away. I'm taking me out of the equation and I'm saying that this situation is happening to me rather than is it is it possible that this could actually be happening for me? Um, and, and that's a big difference in, in thinking. So the never making assumptions uh, really started playing an impact. Uh, you know, I would wake up in the morning and I would just assume uh, it's going to be a difficult day. And then what I assumed difficult meant was bad. Like I thought difficult difficulties were bad. We were supposed to not have difficulties. And those are some of my assumptions that I started challenging. Um, you know, is feeling bad really bad? Um, well, it depends on your goal. You know, if my goal is to get better, if my goal is to do more and to become more, uh, difficulties are necessary. And so is the difficulty of this week actually, um, is the meaning of it something that is bad or something that's not supposed to be there? Or is it possible uh, that maybe the universe is actually helping me out a little bit by strengthening me through this situation. So I, I, I found myself like challenging my assumptions, my assumptions about my past, my present, and my future. Um, and then the fourth agreement is always do your best. Um, you know, I, it kind of touches on the idea of, of uh, how you do anything is how you do everything. Mm -hmm. And the very first time that I read that, uh, the always do your best, I started paying attention to my habits of my, my, I had a habit of giving 30% uh, if I wasn't completely interested in what I was doing. And so one of my chores at the time was the bathrooms. And I remember the, f the first time that I read, always do your best. Uh, and I read, you know, all the implications of that. And I went and I cleaned that bathroom for like an hour straight. Like every, I was and all the guys, they would do their chores in like 10 minutes and then put everything up. I was in there scrubbing and cleaning. And what I, what I was really starting to try to work on is I wanted that to be a habit of mine. And if I have a habit of giving my very best at everything that I do, it's hard not to be successful. It would be hard not to find success in, in, in anything that you do. Uh, I just had to develop the habit of giving my best. Even I heard Mike Tyson say, uh, discipline is doing what you hate to do, but doing it like you love it. And you know, the bathrooms were not anything that I uh, wanted to do, but there was something I had to do. And what what cleaning those bathrooms meant to me was up to me. 
And so what those bathroom, you know, that situation meant to me was this is an opportunity for me to do my very best so that I can build the habit of doing my very best. Uh, so I, I guess that gets back to the, the, the four agreements was the most impactful and most important book that came to me at a time in my life when I needed exactly what it said in that book. Yeah. Um, when we worked together, I, m- I remember you did a, uh, a talk on the four agreements like once a month. And it was, I always look forward to that. Like I didn't even have to be there, but I would make sure that I made it to that, to that talk every month. Yeah. And every month it was something new, you know, yeah. you were always, you're always building and making it better. And to hear you talk about it now, like it just gets me excited. Like yeah. it's, it's, um, I, I love it. I could listen you talk about the four agreements all day. Um, but yeah, digging in a little bit to, you know, your experience as a substance abuse counselor, like what was that like? Um, I think I, I learned, uh, I learned so much, uh, so much there. I, I, I think that, uh, working with the substance abuse population, um, I, I, I think that anything that works, well, if you can help people break the cycle of addiction and substance use, um, you learn a lot about how to address other things. So anxiety, I mean, you're going to learn about how to address anxiety, how to, how to help someone battle depression. Um, so, you know, we worked with the young adults uh, for a long time. It, it was, it was very meaningful. And, uh, I think one of the things that I learned was that, Oh, one of the things that, that I tried to practice was uh, it was uh, the lesson that I'd learned from Chris Moore in Memphis. Chris, Chris Moore took a guy that was in a homeless facility in Memphis, Tennessee, had no, you know, uh, college education, uh, was broke, um, you know, psychologically, uh, you know, pretty broken. Um, and what he saw sitting across from him is he saw something more than who I was at the moment. And so that's something I tried to practice, you know, with the, the clients that we worked with was, um, I tried to, I tried to see them. And there was a, there was a quote that I'd heard. Um, if you, if you see a man as he is, he'll, he'll stay the same. But if you see him for, for what he could be, uh, then he'll, uh, then he'll become, he'll be more likely to become that something like that. And, you know, so I always tried to see the potential in people rather than just seeing where they where they were in that moment. Um, so but there was a lot I would say I was a, working uh, as a substance use counselor was uh, I, I was learning and teaching myself as much as I was teaching others, I think. Yeah, that's um, I love that. One of the questions that I was asked in a job interview once is, do you like, do you like learning more? Do you like teaching more? And it's kind of a trick question, catch 22, because I, I like teaching, but I like teaching because it helps me learn. Right. <laughs> you know, so it's like, really it's, it's, I like learning more. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah. Yeah. I think, that's, I, um, I think it said that, um, in order to, in order to master something, you have to be able to teach it. I've heard that as well. Yeah. yeah. So, um, kind of getting into the last few questions here. Um, one of the, the other day you sent me a clip and it was Andrew Huberman talking about ice baths and breathing. And he was talking about how, you know, certain breathing mechanisms like breathing in and out really fast and then holding your breath is teaching you top down control mm-hmm. or getting in an ice bath is teaching you top down control. Mm-hmm. Where he talks about how exhaling for longer than your inhaling helps you calm down, or if you, you know, inhale longer than you exhale, um, it, it helps you get, you know, amped up. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on different ways people could practice top-down control. Yeah, so I think um, one of one of the things that I learned very early on was that discomfort is a good thing and that if I'm aware uh, and practicing my thinking while I'm experiencing some type of discomfort uh, that I'm actually getting a little bit stronger and so I would say do something uncomfortable every day 
Um, if, I, if I go too many days without doing something that puts me in discomfort, um, I feel like it, it weakens me a little bit. And so the uh, one of the things I've been doing recently is the ice the ice cold showers. Um, but I, like one of the one of the best ways, you know, I love I love running and I love running, um, you know, for a distance. And one of the reasons that that I love that is because uh, when your body is tired and you're wore out and your brain is telling you to stop, you can't go any further. If you can battle that in that at that moment at that time, it's like a mental muscle. Uh, for one, you, for one, you have to uh, you have to know that there's discomfort coming, and you go into it anyways. All right, man, that's applicable in everything, right? Like in in most of life, is uh, you know I see something that's going to make me uncomfortable, yet I'm going to do it anyways. And so it's like strengthening this mental muscle uh, of doing things that are that are hard. Um, and and then there's you know one of the other things that you know we had talked about is when you're five or six miles into a run, especially you know, uh, depending on how difficult running is for you, if you're five and six miles into a run, it, it really strips away a lot of the bullshit and you really get down to this, uh, uh, this you know, it's just you and you there, right? And what are we going to do? What are we going to say? Um, how am I going to uh, control my perceptions of what this run is? Uh, am I going to be able to, you know, to coach myself through it? Am I going to be able to, um, you know, control my perceptions? And, um, you know, keep going when everything hurts and when everything's telling me to stop, uh, can I push through that? And so I think that that's, you know, the running distance running has been one of the ways that I've really played with my thoughts. Um, you know, so five or six miles into a run, you start to be, you start to become very aware of what drains your energy and what gives you energy. Um, so what I've noticed is, you know, five or six miles into a run, um, you know, I start, you know, thinking, uh, you know, a certain thought and all of a sudden my body wants to slow down and I want to stop. Um, but I could think this other thought like this, um, you know, about I could I could choose. And this goes back to focus. Um, you know, that's and that's another one of the big lessons I've learned is um, I get to I get to control what I focus on at any given moment in any given situation. So I can either be focused on this being an opportunity or I can be focused on this being an obligation. Um, if I'm focused on this being an obligation, this is a chore, this is just something I have to do, that, that drains my energy uh, because it's, it's putting me in a situation where uh, this is actually something that's happening to me rather than it's possible that this is happening for me. And so I'll play around with that idea. Is, it, is this run something I just have to do or is this run something I get to do? Uh, is this an opportunity to get better, to get stronger, to get wiser? Um, and and I get to, and if I, I practice that in my runs, and then I can practice it in other areas. Uh, so you know, uh, you know, the coming week, you know, the the week that's coming up is is this week just something I have to do? Is you know, work just something I have to go do, or is it something that I get to do? Is it possible that it's an opportunity? Uh, those are two completely different uh, ways of focusing. And it has a big impact on your energy levels and um, and the meaning of, of, of what you're doing and what's happening in front of you. Yeah, yeah, that's that's awesome. I I love hearing your insight into into that kind of stuff. It's it's very empowering. So, if you were to be writing your hero story again right now. What would it what would it look like? Like, what does the future look like for you? I know you just started a new job. Like, what what would that story look like right now? For the next five years is um, maximum growth, um, doing things that I'm uncomfortable with, finishing finishing the master's and then going into a PhD program, uh, writing a book and uh, doing more speaking engagements. Uh, doing the very best that I can to make sure that I'm of some type of value uh, to the world. Um, ultimately, my ultimate goal, my ultimate philosophy is that whenever whenever I do leave this place, um, it's very important to me that this world is, is a little bit better because I was here. And that's going to be a direct reflection of who I become in the process. So um, my goal, my, my hero is becoming everything that I could possibly become while I'm here, because if I become more, I can do more. Uh, and 
I want, I, I don't want, I don't want to leave this place leaving uh, anything, anything behind. I want to, I want to do everything that I possibly can uh, to help ease as much suffering in my life, my family's life, and the life of others. I want to do. Um, my hero is, you know, is is doing everything he can to improve the lives of anyone around him and the communities and help to tip the scales a little bit more towards the good than the bad. That's, that's awesome, man. Um, well, I appreciate you so much for coming on today. Um, I look forward to having more conversations like this and, um, yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. All right, man. I'll see you later. All right. All right.